Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Charles Duhigg, tips for everyday habits. Fifteen percent of people on average will actually write down at the top of their to-do list something that they've already done. Yeah, guilty. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I did that. But the point is that this is a device. We can turn a to-do list from a memory aid into a device that forces us to think a little bit more deeply about our priorities. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, do any procrastinating this week, Richard? (laughs) (laughs) Always, Jim. Always procrastinating. It's a constant problem in technology. I think it's just made it that much more challenging with Facebook and Twitter and so much interesting stuff out there. But we have a guest today who's going to help us cut through all the distractions that keep us from being productive. Yeah, we've got to be more productive. Charles Duhigg is our guest. He's the author of two best-selling books, The Power of Habit and the new one, Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and in Business. We're going to ask him about those secrets. So, Charles, you're joining us from uh, by Skype all the way in, in Midtown Manhattan. At the New York Times headquarters, right? So, That's right. That's exactly right. And um, there were a number of emails involved in setting up this this show. And in, in your book, you talk about email as being both a productivity tool but also a huge obstacle to, to productivity. Why is that? Well, I, I think the thing about email is that it, in theory, it's one of these things that's amazing, right? But but if you think about how people actually use email, one of the things that we do is we tend to use our inbox as a to-do list. And the danger in that is that it's a to-do list that you have given everyone else on earth permission to add items to without your consent necessarily. And so I think one of the things that we're seeing, and we saw this when telephones were first invented, every new technology brings not only a sort of utopian promise, but also real risks about how it ends up getting implemented into our lives until – and basically until the a generation worth of people kind of use it and learn an etiquette, a mental etiquette around it. Well, Charles, so I, I want to know some some email tips because one thing that happens to me is I look at my friend – I look over the shoulder of my friends when they're on their smartphones and I see that they have 2,834 unread messages and I think, oh, that's that's <laughs> awful. 
Well, that's actually totally okay. I mean, this is the point is that, is that email is designed to, to encourage us to be reactive, to say, I want to get to zero inbox. But are you getting to zero inbox because that makes you productive? The most productive people are people who push themselves to, to be proactive rather than reactive. So one of the best mental models that I've heard for thinking about email is to look at email as a suggestion rather than an obligation. And a suggestion that you get from your boss, for instance, is a suggestion that you're going to listen to pretty, pretty closely. You're going to reply to that suggestion. But a suggestion that comes from someone you know, on the other side of the company or from someone outside the, of your, your immediate circle, those are suggestions that you know, if it's in your best interest, you'll listen to it if it makes sense to you. But otherwise, you might also just ignore it. There's no need to follow up and tell someone, oh, I ate at the restaurant you suggested to me or I, di- or I decided not to. Yeah, so and- if I don't respond to an email or somebody doesn't, more importantly, somebody doesn't respond to my email, I shouldn't feel pissed. Well, I don't think you should feel pissed. I think that you should then figure out, like, how important is this to you? Do you email them again? Do you call them on the phone? I mean, this is the thing is that we've gotten to a place where people hit, hit the email button so easily that we know that people send emails that are not actually for things that are important. And so the question is, how do you create a little bit of a higher transaction cost on the emails that you don't want to necessarily deal with? And the answer is you force people to, to give you a phone call or to email you two or three times. Yeah, Jim makes me do that all yeah. the time. He doesn't, <laughs> Actually, he doesn't respond to half my email. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I feel if somebody's giving me a phone call for something that could be resolved easily by over email, I find that a little bit rude almost. I mean, because that is a direct interruption I have to listen to the damn voicemail. I have to remember what they said. Um, whereas with email, I can sit on it until I'm ready. But then there's a risk that it gets buried in the, in the flow. So, you know, I guess there's no perfect solution. Well, I guess the question is, in a situation like that, how much do they actually need your input versus being able to solve that problem on their own? So, But are there any, any tips that you can say, this will make your life better when it comes to email? So, so this is how I do emails. I sit down and just go through the inbox and I just hit delete a lot. But then the things that are left over that I really have to deal with, what I do is I hit reply, reply, reply. I fill up my screen with all the replies that I need to deal with. And then we know from neurological studies that it's easiest to motivate, it's easiest to get things done when I feel like I'm making a choice or a decision where I'm in, I can assert some type of control. And so what I'll often do is I'll take all these responses on my, my screen and I'll type like a half sentence in each one, basically just asserting some choice. So if someone's saying like, let's have a meeting, I'll say like, sure, but let's start at three o'clock and I need to be done by 3.15. Or if they say, hey, can you come, can you go to lunch? I'll say, sure, but I, I want to go eat Indian food at this one place I like. And I'll literally just write those half sentences, fill up, you know, do that like 10 or 15 times with all the resp- replies that are on my screen. And then I'll go back and I'll fill in all the the secondary stuff, right? Like, hey, Jim, yes, I'd love to meet. Let's do it at three o'clock. Thanks so much, Charles. But the point being there is that by asserting myself, by transforming that chore into a choice, it's not only easier to motivate, it's also just much easier to move through that stuff quickly. Well, I'm fascinated by what you just said, transforming a chore into a choice. So this idea that we have choice and we have some control over what we're doing, you think is crucial to us being more effective. Well, we know that it's crucial to self-motivation. The fastest way to create self-motivation is to find some choice that we can take advantage of. We're not talking about just self-motivation. We're talking about success. And the other thing that we know is that very often in order to be able to sustain a focus on a task, we need to find some aspect of it that seems to link up with our higher values and our higher goals. 
And, and, you know, for instance, in the book, Smarter, Faster, Better, there's this one researcher I was talking to, and, and this is my favorite story of kind of how to do this easily, who said, you know, when I sit down to grade papers, which I hate doing, I hate grading students' papers, what I do is I repeat this mantra to myself, that by grading students' papers, I allow the university to collect tuition dollars. And by collecting tuition dollars, they're able to fund my research. And by funding my research, I'm able to find cures for cancer. And that saves people's lives. So by grading these students' papers, I'm actually saving people's lives. That's great. Now, this is a guy with like an MD, PhD, right? He's an he's a, he's a oncology researcher. You don't think that this is the type of guy who should have to convince himself to sit down and grade students' papers. But the point is that very often our brain's default is to stop thinking. It's to be reactive. It's to, it's to just kind of find the easiest path. And if we have these practices, what psychology knows as contemplative routines, habits that help push us to think a little bit more deeply, then it allows us to do things like generate self-motivation more easily and as a result to, to get things done. So one of the areas where I think we often tend to think we're being productive, but we're really just taking the path of least resistance is how we use our to-do list. I mean, I, I've got a to-do list every day, but it doesn't necessarily mean I get my most important things accomplished by the end of the day. So let me describe how I used to write to-do lists, and I think most people do, which is that I used my to-do list as an external memory aid, right? I would just jot down a bunch of things that I wanted to get done that day. And, and very often what I would do is I'd put the easiest things at the top because it feels so good to like be able to sit down and check something off my list right away. In fact, we know that 15% of people on average will actually write down at the top of their to-do list something that they've already done. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Well, instead of just using it as a memory aid, what a to-do list should be is something that pushes us to think about our priorities. And so the way that we do that is that at the top of a to-do list, what we should do is we should write what's known as a stretch goal. Our biggest goal for today, our most important thing for today, for this week, for this month. So the toughest thing, the biggest thing that we, we want to get accomplished. Not necessarily the toughest thing. Okay. The most important thing, right? Because, because the toughest thing could be like write a book, right? Mm-hmm. That's, or run a marathon. That's pretty tough. But what's the most important thing for you to get? If you could only get one thing done today and this week and this month, what are those things? And put that at the top of the list. Put that at the top of the list. And then that way, when you look down at your to-do list every single time, you're forcing yourself to think, is what I'm doing right now, does it align with my top priorities, right? But the point is that this is a device. We can turn a to-do list from a memory aid into a device that forces us to think a little bit more deeply about our priorities. So I want to know how you became interested in in productivity and habits. What, What was your story? Why'd you write this book, I guess? So a couple of years ago, my first book, The Power of Habit, had just come out. And, and it was doing really well, much better than I expected it would or had any right to expect. And at the same time, I was working on a series for the, for the New York Times where I'm a reporter about Apple. And, th- and that series actually went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, and so, yeah. So, so you, you mentioned the Pulitzer. Got it right. in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so professionally, it was a very successful year for me. But I would come home and I would say to my wife, if, if this is what success feels like, sign me back up for failure because this is just a terrible lifestyle. Like I would get home and I would, you know, just want to like enjoy having dinner with my kids and watching bad TV with my wife. And instead I'd have like 150 emails that I needed to deal with. And, and, you know, three things left over from the day that like I meant to get done, but I never, I never finished. And I just felt like I was working all the time. And I felt like the harder and harder I was working, the farther and farther I was falling behind. 
And so I really wanted to figure out, it seemed like there were these people out there who were much better at getting things done. More importantly, getting successful things done. And at the same time, they didn't seem so stressed or so overwhelmed. So, so, so what did you learn from this experience? That the people who are most productive and successful, they tend to push themselves to think a little bit more deeply. And it's not hugely more deeply. It's just like half an inch more deeply about things like priorities and which goals to focus on and how they self-motivate. And who in particular did you find was a, a real avatar of this? I mean, there's literally hundreds of people. So Atul Gawande, who's a writer for The New Yorker, as well as a, a, a surgeon at Harvard is a great example. Or, or General Charles Krulak, who redesigned how Marine Corps boot camp functions, is, is a great believer in, the, in a lot of these sciences because he redesigned boot camps expressly to teach recruits how to make more choices, how to, how to develop what's known as a bias towards action. And so by finding these, these stories and telling them, I found these eight characteristics, eight devices or ways of understanding how our own brains work that allow us to, to push ourselves to think a little bit more. I'm especially interested by the Marine Corps example because when most people who aren't in the military think of military training or boot camp, it's like follow orders. And your example says, no, it's not simply following orders. That's exactly right. So, so for, for many years, boot camp was about discipline and obedience. But beginning in about the early 1990s, they found that that just was not effective anymore. It wasn't effective because recruits had changed, but it also wasn't effective because the types of situations that Marines were going into were situations where they had to be much more self-sufficient. And so they needed to know how to, how to push themselves, how to generate drive very quickly. And so what the Marines now focus on in boot camp is trying to train people how to, this bias towards action, how to develop what's known as an internal locus of control to find these choices or decisions that allow them to feel like they're in control of their own life. You know, one of my favorite examples is that oftentimes in the first couple of weeks of boot camp, you'll, you'll go into the mess hall and you'll have lunch. Then your drill instructor will come up and say, now you need to clean the mess hall. But they won't tell you where the cleaning supplies are. They won't tell you, you know, how to load the dishwasher, which is actually this complicated dishwasher. They won't tell you whether to throw away the leftovers or put them in the fridge. Instead, they force you to figure all this stuff out on your own because they know that once you get addicted to this, to this feeling of taking control, of making choices, of pushing your will through a situation, it becomes very addictive, right? We like taking control. It makes us feel good. And so the whole goal of boot camp is to teach kids how to take control because that way when you're by yourself on some battlefield in the middle of nowhere on the other side of the planet, you don't have direct orders. All you have is a goal. This is really, I mean, what we know now is, and we know this about schools, the most effective schools. We know this about how to raise your own children, is that, is that telling kids what to do, rewarding them for things like intelligence, saying like, oh, you're so smart. These are actually counterproductive because they don't inform a kid's ability to think of themselves as someone who can control their environment. Instead, it's much better to say, you got a great grade on that test. You must have worked really, really hard. Or to say, I know what the solution to the problem you have is, but why don't you find that solution? Let's talk about different options. What are different ways? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You can go. Right. And one of the things that you've talked about in, in both your books is this idea of mental models and, and how we organize how we think reality exists and how we relate to reality. And these can be really helpful. They're really necessary for navigating this complex world. But they can also lead us down some really counterproductive paths. And one that you go into a lot of depth is, I think, one of the most fascinating airplane accidents of the last couple of decades. Air France 447, the plane that crashed into the Atlantic en route from Rio to Paris. And, and disappeared, right? For yes. The, the, and the, they couldn't find the wreckage for and, a couple of and years. And no one could figure out exactly what happened for a long time. And you think that the mental models of the pilots, especially one particular co-pilot, were critical in that crash, right? Absolutely. And we know that. We know that from, from cockpit recordings. Basically, nothing was wrong with that flight. At one point, a series of small tubes froze over and the pilots lost airspeed information. But, but, but those pitot tubes, as they're known, quickly thawed out. And the pilots had all the information they needed to fly the plane safely. But the plane ended up crashing into the ocean, not because of a mechanical problem, but because of a problem of attention. That the pilots were in this reactive mindset. They didn't have a story they were telling themselves about what they ought to be paying attention to, what they ought to be ignoring. And this story that we tell ourselves, what's known as a mental model, is critical in allowing us to almost subconsciously decide where to put our attention. Well, explain how those pilots could have constructed a mental model that would have helped them when there was something that was unusual that happened to them in the cockpit. Well, I, I think the best way to explain that is in the book, we, could, we contrast Air France 447 with another flight, which is known as Qantas Flight 32. And Qantas Flight 32 actually had a huge mechanical problem in, the, in midair. It had a, uh, a huge hole in one of its wings, and 22 of the 24 systems that are used to keep a plane aloft were knocked out because a fan blade within one of the jet engines had exploded into thousands of pieces, and it was like shrapnel going off inside this wing. And in that situation, they actually managed to land that plane safely because the pilot, the captain and his co-pilots, had very strong mental models. In fact, it, before they had even stepped foot on the plane, the captain, Captain DeCrebny, Richard DeCrebny, he would force his co-pilots to tell these stories about what they would do in case of an emergency. If, if engine two goes out, where's the first place your eyes are going to go? What are you going to do with your hands? Tell me a story about how you're going to react to this emergency. And that's exactly what they did. For the first 10 minutes after this cataclysmic accident in one of the wings, everyone in the cockpit, they sort of follow these narratives inside their head. They follow these scripts that they've practiced. Now, it turns out that the problems with that plane were so significant that the scripts inside their head were not sufficient to actually deal with the problem at hand. They started becoming overwhelmed. They started falling into what's known as a cognitive tunnel. 
And so Richard de Crebney does this kind of interesting thing. In the middle of this emergency, he takes his hands off the controls, he closes his eyes, and he says to himself, I need to find a new mental model, a simpler mental model to make sense of what's going on around me and to figure out what to pay attention to and what to ignore. So he decides to imagine that plane as a Cessna. Now, this is an Airbus A380. It's one of the largest, most complicated planes on Earth. A Cessna is like a toy compared to an Airbus A380. A Cessna is, is incredibly simple. And by imagining that plane as a Cessna, he was able to, to basically say within milliseconds, okay, the brakes, I need to pay attention to the brakes because the Cessna has the brakes and it needs them. But all these other alarms that have to do with, for instance, the guidance system, I'm just going to ignore those alarms because they're too overwhelming right now and I don't need that guidance system to land this plane. I only need to focus on things like navigation and brakes. How does mental modeling help us in more mundane circumstances of, of everyday life? So one of the things that we know is that the most successful executives tend to be people who build mental models every day. And for instance, what that means is that they, they think about their schedule, right? Like today I've got a meeting from 10 to 11 o'clock. And most of us will just think about like, okay, I've got this meeting. I need to be in the room for it. But people who are particularly productive and successful, they tend to think a little bit more deeply and just say, okay, how is this meeting going to start? Well, well, Bill's going to start by introducing this topic that I, re- that I don't care about very much. So what I need to do is I need to move us on to the next item on the agenda. And Susan, Susan's going to object to the idea I bring up because she always objects. So I need to have a response ready to cut her off before she like, you know, kind of poisons the waters. They just, they try and tell themselves a story about what's going to happen with just a half a degree more specificity than other people. One of my favorite quotes comes from Haley Barber, who said, you know, the most important thing is keeping the most important thing the most important thing. In other words, keeping your eye on that thing that matters most to you is the secret to success. And that sounds easy to say, yet we know in practice you get to work and there's like a hundred emails to deal with and these people stopping by your office saying, can you help me out with this? And there's some phone call that interrupts you in the middle of something. We need a mental model, a story we've told ourselves about how we expect our day to unfold to allow us to, to say automatically to the person who sticks their head in, hey, look, I can't come stop by your meeting. I got other stuff I'm focused on right now. On the other hand, when the phone rings and it's some expert that, that you know, helps me write the chapter that I've decided is the most important thing for today, to, to stop and pick up that phone call, that does contribute to what I want to get done. So did writing the book make you smarter, faster, and better? Yes. Yes. Researching this book definitely made me smarter, faster, and better. Um, it's, it's had a huge, hugely positive impact on my life. So Charles, I know you're, you're a parent, you're a dad. How did writing smarter, faster, better make you a better parent? Well, I, you know, one of the things that it's done is it's given me a whole bunch of tools to try and figure out what's really going on inside my kids' lives. You know, one of the issues that we had is that my wife and I were constantly getting home late to have family dinner with our kids. And, and we know that family dinner is important, right? It's something that we actually cared about a lot. And we couldn't figure out why we kept on getting home late. And, and so we sat down and we used this method known as the five whys. This comes from the, the Toyota production system or, or what's known now as lean manufacturing or agile methodologies. What agile and lean say is that you need to figure out what's kind of at the core of what's driving your problem. You need to do a root cause analysis to really be able to solve a, an issue. And so my wife and I sat down and one of the easiest techniques of this is just to ask why five times. So we said, look, 
or we're getting home for dinner for dinner late. Why is that? Well, the first why is it's because we keep on meaning to leave the office at five o'clock, but we have all this stuff at the end of the day to deal with, and so we don't get at the door till like six. So why do we have all this stuff to deal with at the office? Well, it's because we're getting to the office right before our first meeting, and so as a result, all the stuff that we want to take care of in the morning, we end up putting off until the evening. So why are we not getting to work until right before our first meeting? Well, it's because we're leaving the house late. And why are we leaving the house late? It's because it takes forever to get our kids dressed. Like one of my sons like wants to try on like four pairs of pants. Why is it taking so long to get dressed? Well, it's because we haven't figured out what clothes for them to wear the night before. So every night our kids lay out the clothes that they're going to wear the next day. And, and as a result, the, when they wake up, they put them on. And we're able to get out the door faster and then come home in time for dinner. And if you had told me that the key to having dinner as a family was improving our nighttime ritual about our kids laying out their clothes, I would have said that they're completely unconnected. And yet this methodology of looking at root causes, of just asking why five times, it allowed us to see something important about our own lives. And that's really what productivity is about. Charles Duhigg, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. We're all much smarter, faster, better for for speaking with you. So, Jim, I'm pretty sure that that you're more organized than I am. Yeah, I I have no idea where you get that idea, Rich. And I know you've said this a number of times that you're writing this book. So I want to know what you do to improve your organization. Well, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And both of us are people who've left highly structured office jobs for big organizations and to to work on our own projects, including this podcast, and I'm writing a book about disasters. And so, you you know, as editor-in-chief of a magazine, I had the luxury of, actually, you can react a lot of the time. You know, responding to things that pop up is a big part of the job, and it's okay to spend some of your time on that. When you're working at home on your own, it's a very different picture. Yeah, and, and, and so one of the things you do is you have a, a the to-do list that we talked about, and I think Charles was talking about the the big goal that you put at the top of the page. Right. So he's got this notion of the stretch goals, the bigger, the big goal for the for the month or, or the week, and then the. But he's also got the smart goals, which are the crucial ways you're going to get to your stretch goals, and those really do matter as long as you don't let them take over and you lose sight of the big goal. But you know, one thing he he that's in the book is he talks about on Sunday nights before the week starts, he'll sit down and think like, what do I really want to get accomplished this week? So he has a system to do it by doing it Sunday night. Yeah, and this whole subject is is more important now than it used to be because you and I are part of this move. Many more people now have freelance jobs as opposed to staff jobs. I think back in 1980, 90% of people had a staff job, a full-time job, and now a full one-third of people are freelancers. Right. And so, like us, those to-do lists, those ma- those daily management skills are really important. And the gig, and you know, businesses are usually set up to keep their employees reasonably productive. But when you're part of this gig economy, there's a lot of things that you don't even necessarily bill for. The time it takes to get invoices together, or to track your, um, you know, your expenses, that kind of thing. When you're in an office job, you can sit down there and work on your expenses for two hours. When you work for yourself, no one's paying you to do right. that. Right. One bigger thing that Charles doesn't mention, which I think is really important, is attitude. Uh, Cynicism is the enemy of hope. And 
comparison is the thief of joy. I think Teddy Roosevelt said that. I'm stealing his quote. But your attitude towards life, I think, is very important in shifting yourself away from old habits to being more constructive. Right. But I think that the the key in his idea is is having that big positive goal and not focusing as much on the little tasks that it takes to get you there. I mean, those are necessary, but you may rattle off a lot of little tasks, answer a lot of emails, and not be any closer to your goal and probably not be much happier um, just because you've answered 50 emails today. One of the things I love about this time of year are listening to, reading, watching commencement addresses because they're very often on how we can make our lives better. We'll have a link to a couple of commencement addresses that I love uh, on our website, howdowefixit.me. Also a link to Charles Duhigg's book, which really is a good read and has a lot of tips. Yeah, and his early book, The Power of Habit, you know, one of those very influential books make people realize their brains don't always work exactly the way they think they do, but also that we can change the way they work uh, by setting the right goals. I think that's a very, very powerful idea. The website is howdowefixit.me. And one of the things we love is if you download our show on iTunes and uh, subscribe to us, it makes a big difference, makes us more visible. Thanks for listening. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer, who's right in the studio here, keeping us honest and getting us to answer, ask the right questions. And our auto engineer is Denise Barbarita here at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. The show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for nonprofits and companies. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.